Please turn with me in Scripture to the book of Daniel. Daniel, the last of the major prophets after Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the book of Daniel, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding all visions and dreams. Now at the end of these days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king interviewed them. And among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. And God add his blessing to that reading of his own word. Well, we... Now begin this with the help of God, this new series on the book of Daniel. And as you know, Daniel contains both historical portions relating the events of Daniel who lived in the Babylonian captivity among those captives that were first brought in fact to Babylon 
and then these latter chapters, they contain prophecy with regard to what is going to happen in the latter days. And with so many other things that contain prophetic elements, of course, there is a squeamishness sometimes among the God's people because they've heard these things misused and there's a reticence then to dwell into them. But this, as with all of God's word, is given for our benefit. And we, with, again, with God's help, pray that it would be of use to this church. But I want us to understand that actually the book of Daniel is, is not of some, about some obscure details of controversial competing theories of the end times. It's about two extremely basic things. And it is not just that artificially, it is not just that in a few places, it is suffused. It is absolutely from beginning to end, every element of it, the historic as well as the prophetic, it is about these two most basic facts. And first and foremost, it is about the absolute sovereignty of God. Daniel says this in, in chapter 2, verse 20. He said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He is sovereign over all these things. And in his interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, notice what the very point is in Daniel 4.32. They shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. That is the lesson of this entire book, that you might know that the most high reigns in the kingdom of men. And what do you know? That is the lesson that this king eventually came to in Daniel 4.34. The end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to all his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Yes, that is right. Nebuchadnezzar, after being brought low by the discipline, this very severe discipline of the Lord, brought very low indeed, has come to see what the very point of this book is. That he reigns. And he is sovereign over all things. No one can change his work. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, why have you done thus? That is true. And that is the foundation for everything else. But the other thing I said is about two things. The other thing it's about is our response to it. In light of his sovereignty, what should we do? What should we be? And the answer is that we should be faithful. That we should be faithful. That God's people should have no other gods before him. That God's people should be holy as he is holy. And again, this is illustrated not in one place, but in many places, but surely in the the incident of the fiery furnace in Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery, burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. You see? Implications, outcomes, not their concern. Doesn't matter. 
They well know that he is fully sovereign and he is able to rescue them even out of the burning, fiery furnace if it is his will to do. They know that. It's as easy for him to do that as to bring up the grass of the morning. But whether he does that or not, it does not matter to them either. It really is of no concern. Their only concern is that they be faithful and they would not compromise and that they would not worship false gods. Well, this is indeed, because of these things, because of um, this, this theme, and I think particularly of the situation of the context of here we have these, these people of God, these covenant people, the Jews, living in a pagan land, one of the great outcomes, one of the great applications to us is how to be in the world but not of it. And so in these grand, the great idea of the sovereignty of God, then our response to it is faithfulness, and particularly as those who are in a foreign land, particularly as those who are living in a pagan world and must be faithful nonetheless. These are the grand themes. But really, these are the themes that we find in our chapter. All these things we can see in various ways in them. But our title tonight is God Reigns and we must be faithful. God reigns, and we must be faithful. And it has these four headings, four, four points. God gave Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. God gifted Daniel. Thirdly, God gave Daniel favor. And fourthly, Daniel determined to be faithful. So first, God gave Daniel into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Second, God gifted Daniel Third, God gave Daniel favor, but fourth, Daniel determined to be faithful. So first, God gave Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. As we read in verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. I must admit, I'm, I'm... my fluency in Hebrew is not tremendous, and as I was reading very slowly through this in Hebrew, it, I, I almost I sort of tripped over this as I read, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And, oh, wait, it means that the Lord has given his king, the king of his people, into the hand of this pagan ruler. And it, it almost caught me by surprise. But of course, it should be of no surprise to us. This is exactly what was prophesied. This is exactly what was said many times, particularly in Jeremiah 20, verse 4. For thus says the Lord, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of your enemies, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with a sword. This is no surprise. This is no mistake. This is God's settled judgment on his people, which had been many years in coming and well deserved by this wicked and, and rebellious people. They had not been faithful, you see, and we've got to keep that in mind as we carry on in this book. Why are they there now? Why had God given his people into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar? The answer is because they hadn't been faithful. They'd been anything but They tripped over themselves to make compromises with the world. I mean, particularly egregiously, as they made covenants with the nations round about them. They didn't think to relent. They didn't think to repent of their sin to the God who had power over all these things. But rather, no. They wanted to make treaties. 
adulterous, as God calls it, adulterous treaties and covenants with these nations round about them. That was despite the fact that God had explicitly said in Exodus 23:32, you shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. You see, they didn't really believe that big thing, that big picture that I mentioned of, of Daniel. They did not really believe that God was truly sovereign over all the affairs of man. Because if they truly believed that he was sovereign, that he did reign over the affairs of all mankind, they would not have gone groveling to their neighbors to ask for favor. They would have fallen on their face before the living God and asked him for rescue because they would have been convinced that he and he alone could rescue them out of their troubles. Well, they didn't do that. And as we, we know, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. I want to just say again, it wasn't inevitable that it had to happen. It wasn't automatic that each and every time that a pagan king or even emperor came to Jerusalem and besieged it, that that was the game was over. Many other times God had rescued them from these things. You know, in the wonderful and most clear case of the Assyrian siege during the King Hezekiah, the Lord sent his angel to deal with the problem. Second Kings 19.35, and it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people rose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. And there it was. You remember, they, they just went out and collected a spoil. They had, it, it was an amazing thing. That was, that was the end of the story. God could do it just so easily. He didn't send, by the way, 185,000 angels. There probably are 185,000 angels. He could have done that. But he displayed his infinite power by sending just one who slew the entire army single-handedly, and there they were. Siege over. But in this case, we know, unfortunately, the outcome was very different. Because it was of God to bring Nebuchadnezzar against them. It was of God that he would actually take them captive and destroy that city, destroy the temple. It was of God that these things happened. It was of God to execute judgment And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now I'd say he goes on with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Now, as some of you know, some of you know that the book of Daniel, some of those articles are going to figure very largely in a later chapter. But for the moment, all we have to keep in mind is that it is not only their lives, it is not only their lands, it is not only their homes, but certainly their treasures are utterly and completely in the hands of God, and he disposes it as he sees fit. And if they are misused, by the way, he is able to deal with even that, as we'll see soon enough. Well, that is our first point, that God is the one who gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. But secondly, God gifted Daniel. We read in verse 3, the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and with whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And you see the, the instructions. 
This man was sent out to find young men of the royal family or ounce of the nobility who were gifted, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand. And Daniel and his four friends, or his three friends, obviously met all these criteria. And the question is, then, who gifted them? Who gifted them? Who made them so wonderful? Well, God did. We know Proverbs 20, 12, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord God has made them both. And that point is made explicitly clear even in this chapter in verse 17, if we didn't already know it. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. It is no mistake. It is no just something that they did themselves. God determined to bestow upon them remarkable gifting in these areas. And in addition to this, beyond that, Daniel had, all, had understanding in all vision and dreams. Beyond what he'd given to the other of these, of, of, of the four he gave to Daniel, then these prophetic gifts. It's all of God. God gave these things. And what do you know, of course, in verse 19, the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. That's remarkable. These were young men. They were brought. It, it, I mean, it, we don't know their age, but they were young. And this was after only three years of training. They were better than all the established astrologers and magicians, these counselors, these crooked counselors. But they were better than that. Not only a little better, but ten times better. This is a work of God. God gifted Daniel. And thirdly, God gave Daniel favor. This is kind of a separate point. Verse 9, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. That's a different category of blessing. It wasn't merely that God had given much uh, natural or supernatural blessing indeed to Daniel. It was also that he granted that he would find favor in the sight of the one who was in authority over him. And, and that's a crucial matter because those things aren't always the same. We know that. Sometimes favor is not granted to those who are able or, or really deserve something. And on the other hand, sometimes favor is granted to those who don't deserve. But in this case, Daniel was given both of those things and that favor was of God as well. It's a crucial thing because, God, because Daniel certainly would not have had the amazing opportunities that he had to glorify God in the events that would follow had he not been brought into the favor of the one in authority of him at this point. Now, this too, as I say, is explicitly a gift of God. God brought Daniel into favor. He did that. It was of him because he's sovereign. He can do these things. It's all of him. Exodus twelve thirty six. you remember? It's always an interesting thing, isn't it? You know, on their way out of the, the land of Egypt, on their way out, they're penniless, they're slaves, they have absolutely nothing. But God knows that they're going to need things in the future, that need, among other things, gold, to make articles for the service of the Lord. And what does he do? He gives them favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. And so they left with great treasure of gold. From the Egyptians, because God had granted them favor. That's of God. You see, the sovereignty of God is utterly complete. There is nothing that is not included under the heading God it rules over. God is sovereign over it. He gives gifts to people as he sees fit. And he also brings them into favor, the ones who would otherwise not be well disposed to them. He brings them into favor as he sees fit. 
And therefore, he is able to carry out this great work of the history of the work of salvation, of redemption. He's able to bring his people safely through all the waves of time, all the opposition of Satan that we see. He's able because, as we know from the Great Commission, Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. There's nothing outside of his purview. He can do these things. And so he does. God gave him favor. Fourthly, though, these, are, these first three things are all about God, but now there's something about man. Daniel determined to remain faithful. It says in verse 6, Now from among these of the son of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Now, just just to pause right there, it's an interesting technique. We know that it was the policy of the Babylonian Empire to, uh, to integrate people, to bring them away from their distinctive lands, their distinctive policies, and particularly their distinctive religion, and mix them up and bring them into a more generic Babylonian situation. So it was no mistake that they didn't leave their own names, nor did they give some sort of random, uh, neutral type of, of names in the Chaldean tongue, which is not all that much different from the Hebrew one. But rather, they changed their names, which all happened to have the name of God in them. Every one of the, the names had a Jehovah God or, or, uh, or some element of, of God's uh, character and name on them. It changed them all now. For instance, Daniel was God is my judge. Well, the Babylonians changed that, so they're all now pagan deities. And in, in Daniel's case, it's Belteshazzar. And Bel is a pagan god, the keeper of the hidden treasures of Bel. So they could change their names. But Daniel purpose in his heart. They could change his name. But they weren't going to change his heart that was loyal to the Lord God. They weren't going to make him into some syncretist religiously. He was going to toe the line. He was going to, to maintain the religion of his fathers, the covenant of the true God. He purposed in his heart to do it. It, it preceded any other action. It preceded any other word. He purposed this in his heart. And don't we need to purpose that in our heart? As apart from that settled and solid purpose, we will go from to and fro, no matter, depending on whatever the Lord or whatever the world tells us to do, whatever we're inclined to do, we will move this way and that. We must purpose in our heart to be faithful. Now, I would notice, by the way, that the, the immediate test of this comes not all the way down the line when they're being told to bow down before the gold statue. I bet, you know, if the authorities came in right now and, and wheeled in some giant golden bale, we probably would not bow down before it. But the, Lord, the world never begins with something so blatant. It begins way, way back there in something that's seemingly innocent, food and drink in this case. And Daniel knew the implications. Of course, the Old Testament and the Old Testament, they had this ceremonial law. They had food dietary requirements. It was all about the purity of God's people and preserving that in a, a visible way. And probably everything, but certainly things that would go to the king, were sacrificed to idols. 
Um, besides, no doubt in their preparation, these things were not kosher. There's nothing inherently wrong with meat, nothing inherently wrong with wine. The problem was that it, at the very least they were sacrificed to idols. More than likely they'd violated kosher you know, regulations to boot. But funny enough, he doesn't actually mention either of those things, although they're probably true. The specific thing that he determined that he would not do is that he would not defile himself with the king's food and drink. Isn't that funny? For so many people, that would be the greatest honor to share the very same food that the greatest king on earth had, to share his, his meat, his delicacies, and his wine. What an honor! And we can surely, we're in Babylon now, do as the Babylonians, and we can surely make a little minor exception with regard to the law of God for this. But no, he, he regarded it as an affront that he, one of the, the, the holy people of the living God, the king of kings, should defile himself with this petty king of men and all of his pagan idolatrous food. No, no, he wouldn't do that. And you see the contrast, of course. Daniel, he fears God, but the chief of the eunuchs, he says, I fear my Lord the King. You see that? Fear of God, fear of man. They're always at odds. You have to fear one. And we see that this, this chief said, I fear the Lord my King, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the King. It's a fear of man. And that's exactly where we would all be. Apart from God. Well, Daniel made that great purpose to remain faithful, and that's the main story here. We can guess what the outcome is going to be. The outcome in all these things can either be that they're put to death or that God rescues him. And in this case, God rescues him. Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, uh, he says, test them. You know, he gives his test, 10 days to test. And then verse 13, let our appearance be examined before you and examine, compare it to the young men who eat the king's delicacies. And so he consented, gave it a try. And what do you know? At the end of the 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, again, is this simply because that there's some inherent power in a vegetarian diet that will make you look better and fatter after a certain amount of time than those who are not on the vegetarian diet? No. No, and as we're going to see throughout this, it is, it is contrary to human expectation, contrary to what would naturally be the case. God is exerting his power to bring blessing and to alter the outcome in accordance with his own desire. To glorify himself. And so he did. Well, that was Daniel's purpose. And as I say, all these things will recur throughout the book. It is all about God's sovereignty. All about the one duty that we have as his people, which is to remain faithful. No matter what the world says. No matter what threats they bring to bear. And the obvious and first application then is that we ought to fear God rather than man. Again, just letting those words sort of ruminate. I fear my Lord the King who has appointed your food and drink. Well, that's him. That's the chief, that's, uh, the chief of, of Daniel's contingent there. But so many of us could say similar things. But I fear the, but I fear the this or that. Could be peers, could be supervisors, could be family. But I fear this, I fear that. 
Brothers and sisters, let me say that of all the wonderful applications of knowing the sovereignty of God and being fully convinced of it, because you know it's different. It's very different between theoretically knowing that God is sovereign and those words are floating in your head somewhere and to feel it deep in your soul and to know, yes, He truly is sovereign over all the affairs of men. And He to know what Nebuchadnezzar found out that day. When you know that, the wonderful and freeing application of that is that you no longer fear man. It's a wonderful thing. You become like John Knox, who neither feared nor flattered any flesh. And it was not because he did not have temptations along these ways. It was not because pressure was not applied to him. I think as much pressure probably as anyone was applied to him. And yet he was faithful because he was so convinced of the sovereignty of God that he feared God. He recognized that everything goes precisely as God has determined, down to the slightest detail. And it is worthless then. It is a waste of time and effort to fear man. Hebrews 13.6, So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's a good question. Well, man, actually, man can put us to death. Man can put us in a fiery furnace, can he? Yes, sort of. Not really, though. In the end, they can only do what God permits them to do. And even if they throw us in a fiery furnace, he can pull us out of that as easy as anything. Or if it's his purpose to bring us home at that point, well, we only die. God can do no, uh, man can do nothing to us ultimately. The Lord is our helper. And as it says in Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. So fear God and not man. Secondly, though, and I'm, I'm sort of going in order here from the larger applications, the, the principles of applications to something a little bit more specific. And that is secondly, to be in the world and not of it. We know this from going through the, the, the gospel and then the books of the, the letters of John. That's a basic summary of the biblical position that we should be in the world. We don't escape from it in the sense of going and building a monastery somewhere and living utterly separate from anybody else. But we do not be of the world. <clears throat> not in our, our behavior. Not in our words. Not in various ways to in our appearance. Not that we decide to you know, wear some distinctive garb as, as uh, Amish people would do. But rather that the standards, the principles of, of biblical godliness apply to us as, as men and women of God. And we therefore are distinct to some extent even in that. But mainly and most importantly in our thinking. Because that's the thing that the world is always trying to get us to change. We know this, as it were, satanic catechism. And that, that that Satan teaches the whole world. And they lie under the sway of the evil one. Whenever you meet someone who's not a Christian, you know one thing about them. They, he has bought the lie of Satan. Okay? Every time you meet someone who's not a Christian, you must understand one of the great... The, the long list of the lies and central lies that Satan teaches, they've taken hook, line, and sinker. And the world is constantly seeking to press us into its mold. We know that. And we should resist these things. We should be in the world, but not of it. And I ask you, have you purpose in your heart not to be defiled by this world? Is it your intention that you will not become a syncretist. You will not start to mix things 
between God and man. That you'll not start to make compromises, even in things that seem to be small. Things that you could probably get away with, so to speak. Because, of course, once they get you on that, they'll get you on the next one. It's an amazing and sad illustration of the state religion of this nation. The Church of England. Maybe never quite perfect, no church is, but once very much a church that preached the gospel and believed, in fact, the Reformed truth. If you read the 39 articles, our confession is but at the beginning, it was merely just an expansion of and revision of those 39 articles. And so we come, as it were, from that, that same lineage. And you see where they've gone over time. They make one compromise here. Well, I guess it's not a problem to let women be deacons. Surely that's not a big deal. Well, they can read scripture, maybe. As long as they don't preach, that's okay. Well, okay, we can let them preach sometimes. Well, then we'll let them be ministers. And what do you know? Last month, they ordained the first woman bishop. Utterly contrary to the clearest command in all of scripture, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men. It couldn't be any clearer. They took that first step. And all their principles were compromised. And if it could happen to them, it could happen to us. We must determine in our hearts not to be defiled by this world, but to be faithful to God. We must be in the world, but not of it. And our third and final application is particularly to students, and I mean students of all ages. If you go to to school of any kind, young or old, you need to be like Daniel. Because conformity, as I say, conformity to this world is an ever-present danger. And I think particularly in a student situation, it is much worse. Because by necessity, well, A, you're young and impressionable. B, you're there for a good amount of your time. And and C, you're, of course, treated as, as sheep. You're moved from place to place. You're spoken to by those in authority. And those around you, of course, your own peers, seek to have influence over you. Well, we need to make sure that the world is not pressing us into its mold. I, I mentioned Romans 12:2, and you do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You can't be conformed to this world. You've got to resist it. If you just let it go, if you don't do anything else, if you let things run their course, you will be because the, the room, as it were, is, is pressing in and we're the clay and this world is conforming us to its image. We must resist. We must push back and be rather transformed by the renewing of our mind. And just one example of this particularly with regard to study habits The idea, okay, is right, that more study means higher marks. God wants me to have high marks. Therefore, it's okay to completely forget about things like prayer meetings, maybe to study a little bit on the Lord's Day, things like that. And and, and you say, well, well, what's missing in that? More study, higher marks. God wants me to be like Daniel, I'm sure, right? He had high marks. He had the highest there ever were. So surely one thing leads to the other. Well, we do not find Daniel making the slightest compromise at all. We find that he enjoyed the favor of God. We find that that was the crucial element, that God chose to gift him. God chose to grant him favor and therefore blessed his way in his studies. That won't happen if we compromise. Now, maybe the pagans can get away with those sort of things, but we can't. We must put him first. And if you can't do it as a student, you're not going to do it when you get old. Do you understand? 
If you cannot do it as a student, you will not start doing it some magical time when you graduate because the, absolutely the course has already been set. Christ must come first. Does not matter. What, what happens in the... You don't, you don't actually get the very highest grade? No, you might. Because it's in God's hands anyways. Don't you see? It's in God's hands. He gives you six days to work. One day to rest. He gives you a church to also serve and a family to serve. And these things, all things must be in their proper place. And he may yet bless beyond your imagination. But you have to leave the consequences up to him. You must be faithful. You must be faithful. Well, let us pray. Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, you have given us the light of your word. We know, Lord, that there were another people that you gave the light of your word to in Old Testament Israel. And Lord, to their shame and to ours, we who are their children, we who are their descendants spiritually, the seed of that same covenant people, they turn their backs. They no longer believe that you are truly sovereign. They compartmentalized you into some small place. They started imitating the world around them. They started making compromises and soon enough treaties and soon enough these covenants, adulterous covenants. And Lord, you had to bring judgment upon them. And Lord, it was a terrible thing. But how thankful we are to see then one of the children, one of the, the, those whose, whose parents no doubt were involved in these things, as he is brought even to the heart of this pagan land, the, the heart of idolatry in Babylon itself, that he determined that he would not be defiled by these things. Lord God in heaven, how we pray that you would give us such a heart as we recognize, Lord, that truly you are the one who sets up kings and brings them down. You are the one who gives gifts of knowledge, gifts of favor. These things are all in your hands. And we pray, Lord, that we had learned this simple lesson. That if you are sovereign, then that we ought to fear you and, and no man, no, no other authority in, on earth. Yes, Lord, you have set them up and we submit to them in as much as we are able to do so under the word of God but not one step, not one half step further. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill us with this great determination in order that we'd not be defiled, that there'd be no compromise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.